Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a peek inside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I do this when I give a talk. I say, how many of you in the audience have ever heard of Area 51? And all the hands go up. How many of you have heard of Wright-Patterson? And very few hands go up. But uh, Wright-Patterson was uh, basically Area 51 before there was an Area 51. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Thomas Carey is, along with his co-author Don Schmidt and the late Stanton Friedman, one of the preeminent Roswell UFO crash researchers in the world today. He and Don Schmidt are co-authors of a new book on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where many researchers believe the Roswell UFO crash debris was taken and back-engineered. And we'll get to part one of my two-part conversation with Thomas in just a moment. If you haven't registered at strangeplanet.ca yet, well, you just missed the November issue of my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. The December issue will be ready soon, so get on up to strangeplanet.ca and register. It's fast and easy, takes but a moment, then you'll automatically begin receiving Inner Sanctum. And your name will also go into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merchandise, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, tote bags, and more. And that's all available at my Strange Planet shop. The true nature of what actually crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 remains classified. Only a selected few have ever had access to the truth. But what happened to the remnants of that crash is shrouded in even greater mystery. What began in the high desert of New Mexico ended at Wright-Patterson, an ultra-top-secret Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. The physical evidence of extraterrestrial visitation was buried deep within this nuclear stronghold. How tragic that such seismic news should be kept from the people of the world. Pieces of history now quickly dwindling into oblivion as the last of the secret keepers passes on. Thomas J. Carey has a master's degree in anthropology from California State and has also received a fellowship to pursue a Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Toronto. Thomas became interested in UFOs while in high school and rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. Since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell Incident. He is the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Nice to be with you, Richard. 
would this be a fair assessment that the the trail in Roswell is, as we say, you know, you're in a race with the Undertaker. It's it's almost cold, but now you can pick it up at Wright Patterson Airfield, which you which you have done with with Don in your work. Yes, this this book we have out tonight came out about two weeks ago, and uh, it's like the the crash and recovery was the first stage or the first chapter, the delivery. And what happened to it after it got to Wright-Patterson or Wright-Field back then is the second stage of the case. First stage was the crash recovery. The second stage is what went on at Wright-Patterson after the bodies and the uh, wreckage uh, were delivered there. That's what this book is about. Right. Now, it's interesting because Wright-Patterson, like Area 51, is, is shrouded in secrecy, but... Unlike Area 51, we actually know a fair bit about the the origins of Wright-Patterson, its its beginnings, and you you talk about its its early history uh, in UFO Secrets Insight Wright Pat. Just just tell us a little bit about its origins uh, involving the Wright brothers and so forth. Yes, uh, uh, first of all, if you and I do this when I give a talk, I say. How many of you in the audience have ever heard of Area 51? And all the hands go up. How many of you have heard of Wright-Patterson? And very few hands go up. But uh, Wright-Patterson was um, basically Area 51 before there was an Area 51. The uh, the Wright brothers uh, had a bicycle shop in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And they started working on this newfangled contraption called an aeroplane. And, uh, of course, they had the first flight down in North Carolina at Kitty Hawk, somewhere around 1903. And so they uh, they bought a stretch of land outside of Dayton, Ohio, in a, a Huffman Plain. It was a flat area. And uh, so that's where they started developing, uh, continuing the development of their airplane. But they lost control of the uh, of the land mass there uh, with World War One. When World War One came along, the U.S. government confiscated the Huffman plane, and they put up another. Uh, they put up an airport. Now I don't want to go through all the names no, no. of because they went through so many different names for these two air air fields. Uh, uh, it was Wilbur Wright Field, and then it, the other one was Orville. See, I'm already mixed up with it. <laughs> they, there, were two, there were two locations. One was Wright Field, and the other was uh, Patterson, which was named after a World War I flyer who was killed uh, landing there. And so you have Wright Field and Patterson Field. And... Uh, it really came to prominence uh, during World War II. During World War One, it was more like a supply depot where they supplied a lot of things to the nascent uh, Air Corps, Air Corps as it was called. But uh, World War Two comes along, and it really expands. And uh, they have divisions now. They have intelligence. They have engineering. They have supply. It was basically the heart and soul of the Air Corps, or as in World War II, it was called the Army Air Forces. 
and it was the beating heart of the the air air corps and part of that was uh, uh they they had a division called the air materiel command and that was divided up into intelligence and engineering so what they wanted to get their hands on were uh crashed or uh, captured Axis aircraft, Messerschmitts, Mitsubishis, and things like that to see what made them go and how we could uh, defeat them in battle. And uh, that was the job of uh, the Foreign Technology Division. Now, the Foreign Technology Division went through many name changes, and uh, my head spins when I try to <laughs> try to keep track of them, but we'll T just call it T2 at T2 T at this time, wasn't it? Yes, it was T2. Yes. Then it became, I think, ATIC. Then it became FTD. And it's, I think it's NASIC now, but I, I could be wrong on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't, I won't apologize if I'm wrong because they went through so many name changes. But it was uh, intelligence and the Messerschmitts and Mitsubishi Zeros uh, went to there was there was a hangar there, hangar twenty three. Mm -hmm. That's where all of the foreign technology went to try to reverse engineer, uh, tear them apart to find out what made them tick, uh, how we could defeat them. So uh, when this, uh, you know, and it it keeps expanding, and uh, uh, intelligence was there. And uh, it was the uh, heart and soul of the Army Air Forces during World War II, and then then the U.S. Air Force when it became a separate branch in uh, September of 1947, right after the Roswell crash. Right, right. We get in so, the summer of 47, uh, the 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 UFO panic, as you call it, uh, or the Pentagon panic in 1947. Yeah. Um, at that point, uh, was was. Uh, General uh, Nathan Twining was he stationed at uh, was he in charge of T two at Wright Pat? Yes, uh, General Nathan. Uh, I forget his middle initial. Uh, oh, Nathan F. I think it's F Twining. Anyway, he was in charge of T two Air Materiel Command. Uh, I don't know. He had either three or four stars. He ultimately became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, with four stars, and uh, we were uh, good friends with his son Nathan Jr., who really uh, uh, was uh, 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 taken with our work on Roswell. And so Nate Jr. became a good friend of ours. He passed away, I want to say, two years ago. Right. And, uh, so yes, uh, Air Materiel Command was. Uh, uh, FTD, foreign technology. I'm just so, sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was no. Go ahead. I was going to ask you about the timing because of the Twining memo, which is held out as you know one of the great sort of smoking gun documents. Here is Nathan Twining talking about these craft, flat on the bottom, domed on the top. The aerial maneuvers they can you know outmaneuver anything that we have. I don't think it's a you know a, a Soviet craft. What could it be? He's sort of reaching out, asking. Now, is he, is if he's at uh, Wright Pat at this point, and he's seeing probably you know crash debris from the latest and the best you know uh, um, aircraft from our adversaries, uh, 
Uh, I'm just wondering about the timing of that. Did that memo come out before Roswell, after Roswell? Oh, that was uh, September of 1947. So it was a month or so after uh, the the crash, yes. Uh, He was responding to a letter or memo, whatever you want to call it, from uh, uh, Brigadier General Shulgin in Washington because he was getting, uh, he was in intelligence in Washington with the uh, Air Corps, Army Air Corps, soon to be U.S. Air Force. He was getting a lot of questions about uh, flying saucers, as they called them back then. And so uh, he wrote to T two, and Wright Patterson, what, hey, what, God, what can you guys tell me? You know, I, I got these people on my back. They want to know about this. I, 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 I don't know what to tell them. And so that's what uh, Twining was responding to. He, we, he gave a list of things that he says it, uh, the flying saucers are not something fictitious. They were real. And then he gave a list of reasons of their characteristics. And that was the so-called uh, Twining memo which went to Brigadier General Shugan in intelligence in Washington. Well, I mean, that's the timing is important. If it's September 47 and Roswell July 47, and so at that point, one would suspect the crash debris had already arrived at Wright Pat and Twining might have already had a chance to look at it. Well, we have stories that uh, Twining... When the crash happened, right after it happened, he flew, whatever his itinerary was, he flew to Alamogordo, New Mexico, to view the wreckage and the, the, some of the bodies. And uh, so that's, we don't have that part nailed down, but there's a, a number of witnesses who said that Twining went to Alamogordo for a couple of days right when the crash happened. But uh, we do know, as for fact now, that uh, the wreckage went to Wright Field, as it was called back then. Uh, the uh, right after the crash, this would be it. Uh, it started um, the first flight to Washington was a special flight on July six. 1947. This is before all the wreckage is even coming into the into the base. Uh, it's part of the stuff that Jesse Marcel brought back, and uh, Washington wanted to get a look at this stuff ASAP. So on the sixth, there's a special flight to Washington with some of the wreckage. So they got it. We know they got it on the sixth, but the stuff started going to right field starting on the seventh. And then the 8th and the ninth, that includes the bodies. So that first week, a uh, little more than a week of July, uh, most of that stuff is already at right, right field. So uh, Twining absolutely had a look at it. Now, in terms of the chronology here, now, um, Jesse Marcel, he originally accompanied uh, the, the wreckage to Fort Worth, correct? Yes. And then didn't Roger Ramey... On officially, at least officially, cancel, saying we're not. You're not going to write Pat. Uh, it was supposed to go from Fort Worth to write Pat, and then officially, at least on the record, he said, "No, we're not flying to write Pat." Yes, that was all histrionics, uh, Richard. Uh, he had the press there, plus some others, and uh, 
they had the balloon on the floor, and there were all these rumors about little bodies and uh, flying saucer, and he canceled that flight. It's We got the stuff here. There's no need for that flight. Cancel that flight. Well, it never was canceled. We know that's a fact because all the stuff did go there, but there's a, uh, a telex from the FBI uh, from the FBI office in Dallas that they learned from uh, Ramey's, uh, one of his high officers there. I don't know if it's the uh, chief of staff or the uh, public information officer, a guy named Curtin. Uh, the FBI learned from him that the flight was not canceled, and it's all in a memo from uh, FBI Dallas to the director with a copy to Cincinnati that uh, the fact that it was canceled is not true, that the flight is on its way to right field. So we have a document that shows that, plus we know from eyewitnesses that it uh, arrived uh, at the right field at that time. Uh, one of those witnesses would be uh, Captain Oliver Pappy Henderson, who actually piloted the, the, the plane, correct? Yes. he uh, Pappy Henderson had the uh, second flight, this, the so-called second body flight, plus some wreckage. July 9. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He had the first, uh, the first body flight on July 8. Where one of the C-54 uh, aircraft that flew directly from Roswell to Wright Field without stopping in between. Uh, he flew wreckage and he flew bodies. And the bodies upset him because he didn't, according to, a, 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 he told a friend that uh, he, he didn't like dead things. He just didn't like dead things. And he only glanced at the bodies that were on the floor inside the hangar. He said they had big heads and uh, uh, slanted eyes, and they just made him, he started getting queasy. But he saw enough that they, they weren't human. And uh, his flight, we have, uh, we've identified one crewman on his flight, and uh, it went straight to right field on July 8th. 1947. This is the same day as that uh, press conference in General Ramey's office where he canceled the flight. Pappy Henderson's flying to right field. And uh, of course the press didn't know about that. They were, they were uh, thinking of the Marcel flight because Marcel was originally ticketed to go to from Fort Worth to right field. But uh, Ramey canceled that flight, or so he said. All right. But meanwhile, all that's taking place. Pappy Henderson is already flying directly to right field from Roswell. The press didn't know about that. You know, this is part of the uh, the mythos of, of Wright Pat is uh, right. we, we all talk about Hangar 18, Hangar 18. But there isn't a Hangar 18. Um, where did that, how did that get started, Hangar 18? That was one of the interesting things about doing this book was that uh, we finally solved what happened with that Hangar 18 story. And uh, there was never a Hangar 18 per se. But what happened was in, 
at on the base there was what they called the building 18 complex it consisted of buildings building 18 through 18 uh, 18g nine buildings there in that complex there's one hangar hangar 23 that's remember now that's that hangar where all that back engineering stuff went right during world war ii one hangar in that that complex and it's hangar 23 so where and when did that uh, could that be hangar 18 could that be the hangar 18 that uh, people were talking about so we did a back uh, backtracking and uh, I first went to the the uh, book the Roswell incident by uh, William Moore and uh, Charles Berlitz actually it was Stanton Friedman but the Stan didn't have a big name I guess at that time I don't know but they the Roswell incident meant, meant mentioned nothing about a hangar 18 but I remembered that there was this movie called hangar 18 that came out the same year as the book right 1980 19, Darren McGavin Darren McGavin no 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 uh, the guy the guy man from uncle uh, 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 Robert Robert Vaughn Robert Vaughn but McGavin was in it too. Was he in it too? Yes. So I'm sitting there watching. I remember I was sitting there watching Johnny Carson one night. And on comes Darren, uh, um, Robert Vaughn. And Johnny says, well, how you doing, Robert? Uh, well, what's up? He said, well, I just finished the movie. What's it called? Hangar 18. But the thing was, when he said that, I knew what he was talking about. So I must have heard it from somebody earlier, but I didn't know where. So we contacted the uh, screenwriter slash director of the movie Hangar 18, a fellow by the name of James Conway. We said, okay, Jim, where did, where did you hear this Hangar 18 thing? He says, oh, I heard that. I, it was, in the, it was in being talked about. It was being talked about, bandied about in the early 1970s. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what, what is that? So that that didn't lead me to the promised land. So I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh, I get the uh, Air Force magazine. Uh, it's I think it's bi-monthly. It's not monthly, but I, I subscribe to the Air Force magazine. And they did a story oh, a couple of years ago about UFOs, uh, how the Air Force was... Uh, uh, they did a really good job. They were uh, they didn't deserve all the uh, uh, calumny that they uh, got from their handling of UFOs. But in that story, they talked about Roswell, and they said, uh, "Hangar 18. This fellow in Florida, this professor in Florida, started talking about Hangar 18, where all the bodies were stored." And I said, oh, that's right. And what that was, uh, Richard, I remembered now that in 1974, I was just about to get on a plane to go to Toronto to start my four years of schooling there. Mm -hmm. And all the talk was from this so-called Professor Robert Spencer Carr talking about Hangar 18 and all these uh, 
flying saucer bodies. That's where they were stored. I remember that like it was yesterday, but I had forgotten it. It started with this fellow in Florida. He was a no professor. He had a high school education, but he t he was like a UFO buff, and uh, he got Florida is a great uh, retirement place for military, right? Sure. And he heard the stories about this Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson from all these retirees that would come up to him after he would give a talk. They, oh, I know I know this. They, up at Wright-Patterson, Wright they got this Hangar 18 where all, where all these bodies are stored. So that's where that the, the, the story got into the public domain. But why was it called Hangar 18 if there is no Hangar 18? Well, in the book, which I'm holding, <laughs> <laughs> in the book we have a schematic of Area B at Wright-Patterson, where it shows the Building 18 complex, and there's that one hangar in Building 18 in, in, in uh, that complex, Hangar 23. They were. It's commonly referred to as Hangar 18 because it's in that 18 complex. Right, right. All those buildings in there are Building 18A, 18B, so and so and so and so. So they just started calling it Hangar 18, but it's really uh, Hangar 23. But common parlance, it's Hangar 18. And interesting enough, right across the back alley from Hangar 18. Uh, 1823 there's building 18 F and that's the cold that used to be the cold storage building be, before they had air uh -huh. conditioning and, and that's where the bodies were kept because we have a guy that used to work uh, in a building uh, near there he said on hot summer days you got the smell coming out of there it smelled like dead fish right know? and formaldehyde and formaldehyde. Right, right. And because that, because the, the the vents inside open to the outside, and this is before air conditioning. And he said, "Oh, it smelled like formaldehyde." Another fellow said it smelled like dead fish. So the proximity of the two, the back engineering of the wreckage and the storage of the bodies early on, right there. Meanwhile, the meanwhile, though. The, uh, between the the Conway uh, screenplay and this uh, car gentleman down in Florida, they gave uh, the uh, the folks at Wright Pat kind of cover because every time a researcher or a tourist started poking around saying, "Can I see Hangar 18?" they could honestly say there is no such building. And there never was. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I want to talk. Absolutely right, but it's it's a it's a play on words. They should they should say, "Okay, show what's the building where the bodies were kept." In fact, we have it in the book. Uh, we have people who talk to uh, to workers at uh, Wright Patterson. Uh, they would, and they told them. They said, "Yes, the the bodies are here, but I can't. I I, I don't know where they're at." Uh, they 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 admit now that the bodies were there or are there when they were questioned. But but they would say, "I don't know where. I don't know where, but they're here." More of my conversation with Thomas Carey when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's the tea that everyone's talking about, and for good reason. 
Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. And I've been using it every day for nearly eight months. And you know, come to think of it, I haven't had a cold or felt sick once. Not once. Is it the Life Change Tea? Well, I can't say for sure. But what I do know is that I have so much energy. I'm maintaining my weight, even lost a few pounds. And my plumbing, well, it's in A1 working condition. I'm more regular than the 509 streetcar. And that's because the Super Strength Cleansing Tea and the Formula 13 Tea, and my favorite, by the way, is pomegranate, they provide a daily gentle cleanse. I feel brand new inside. No bloating, no digestion issues. And as we know, good health starts with a healthy gut. So, if you want to discover the amazing non-GMO, organic, caffeine-free herbal teas for yourself, get on up to getthetea.com. And don't forget to use the promo code UNLIMITED. Then your first order will ship for free. Life Change Tea from getthetea.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Thomas Carey, co-author, UFO Secrets Inside, Wright Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Uh, there's a great quote in the book, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, uh, but it's, it speaks to the, the whole conundrum of trying to reverse engineer when we're talking about, you know, 1947, and you had this, you know, alien, advanced alien technology, uh, but you ha have, you know, the terrestrial science of the day. So the quote is, you know, if you can't plug the thing in, you can't get it to work or, or something to that effect. If you don't know how to plug it in, you're not going to figure out how it works. So talk to me about, you know, the, the, the challenges they must have had trying to back engineer, reverse engineer this technology. And what would have been, do you suppose, the procedure? Oh, the procedure, uh, we got it from people who were given the wreckage as to what the procedure was. They, um, like a, there's a fellow, there's a, his name was Elroy Center. He was a chemical engineer they said one day they dumped this wreckage on my desk they said figure out what this stuff is and so they gave that to various people with different specialties to and no one knew what the other was doing see that's the old compartmentalization you know and uh so they'd give it to a chemist they give it to a physicist they give it to some different people to try to figure out what made this stuff tick and that's how they did it there was no i mean there was no procedure for this other than you know you can't compare a, a mitsubishi with a, a a ship that just traveled through the stars you know uh but they did their best and we even heard uh, years later that they still hadn't figured out what it was so we're uh, it, it was uh, that's that's how they did it they also Right up the street was this Battelle Memorial Institute. It was a combination think tank and metallurgy place. They uh, farmed out this memory metal. This You can't cut it. You can't 
destroy it and you can wad it up in your hand and it just floats out there. And they gave a contract to the Battelle Memorial Institute in 1948 to figure out what this memory metal was and to try to replicate it. And it took them years to do it. And uh, they came up with something called nitinol. Yes. Dr. Frank Wang. Yes. And uh, we had uh, one of our associates interviewed Dr. Wang, and everything was going fine until our interviewer mentioned Roswell. Mm. <laughs> and, boy, the guy couldn't hang up fast enough. And uh, he, there were long pause, and he says, I, I, I won't talk about that, something like that. But that's what they did. They farmed it out to uh, Battelle. We even had another fellow from Lawrence Livermore, another laboratory owned by Battelle out in California. Uh, he even sent, her, sent us a picture of a little piece of this stuff. Doesn't look like much. It's just like a little square. And uh, uh, so they did their best, and they came up with something called Nitinol. It's a, an amalgam of nickel tit and titanium. And there's a special processing that goes with it that was pointed out by uh, General Arthur Exxon, who was the base commander in the mid-60s. He said, uh, someone asked him, well, what's that, what's that stuff made out of? And he says, well, one of the elements is titanium. Uh, and I don't know what the other is, but the, the, the processing is different, which turned out to be true. So they put this amalgam of nickel and titanium together. And so you have N-I-T-I, and the N-O-L, it's interesting, uh, the project leader at Battelle farmed out this project also to the Naval Ordnance Lab in Washington. You see the Washington or Maryland. Uh, the Naval Ordnance Lab. So in 1962, instead of having Battelle announce the discovery or the, the development of this this uh, self-shaped, uh, self-healing metal, nitinol, the Navy did it. And that's where the NOL, it stands for NI, nickel, TI, titanium, NOL, Naval Ordnance Lab. Actually, what, what they did is they laundered the right. project to the Navy. See, so they didn't, the Patel didn't want any part of this any connection to roswell yes yes so they laundered it to laundered it to the navy and they announced this nitinol it's not as good as the original i mean the original was indestructible but you can buy it by the sheet by the roll by the by the uh you know uh you know you got eyeglasses the frame the frames are made out of nitinol some of them because it has bendability and it's based on uh, Roswell memory metal. You talk about sort of the four types of wreckage that were taken to Wright Pat. Uh, we mentioned the memory material. Uh, what else? What else? What were the other two types? Uh, there was, of course, there was metal that was unbendable, you know, very thin, unmet, unbendable, couldn't destroy it. They took a 15-pound sledgehammer to it, could just bounced off so you had the rigid metal the memory metal 
the I beams, and you had things that uh, reminded uh, people of what today we called uh, uh, monofilaments. You know, uh, uh, that 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 you send uh, instead of uh, wire. You know, which is like this. Do I got that right? Monofilaments? Yeah, uh, anyway. yeah. Or Fil- fiber, like a fiber optic kind fiber, of? That's it. See, when you get old, uh, Richard, you <laughs> can't come up. Um, yeah, fiber optics. Yes, that was the other one. And I may be leaving one or two out, but uh, I think I think uh, Jesse talked about something that was like Bakelite. Bakelite right. material. And I don't I don't know what that would be, but uh, he said it was like Bakelite, and uh, that's uh, pretty much most of it was this memory metal, and of course there was the uh, the, the the inner part of the ship, the inner cabin we call it, or a, an escape pod. It was an egg-shaped craft, seamless, about the size of a, a Volkswagen Beetle, egg-shaped. That went another 35 miles and came to rest closer to Roswell. So uh, and uh, so that that was when the craft exploded, everything went to smithereens, and that's what came down on the rancher Mac Brazel's uh, sheep pasture. But the inner cabin or escape pod, we don't know which one it was, that survived the the explosion, whether it was internal. Or external, we don't know. We speculate that it might have been uh, lightning, a lightning strike. That's speculation. But that came to rest another 35 miles uh, from the debris field. So that's pretty much uh, just thinking about it. We we list we list the different types of wreckage in the book. Yes, and uh, I think that's pretty much. Yeah, I think you've. Point. I think you covered uh, the the four main ones, but of course you re- and you refer to the memory material as the Holy Grail. Uh, you know why? No, because any of the other types of uh, wreckage you would have to send out to get it analyzed, and even when even when it's analyzed, and if it comes back that it's otherworldly, oh no, you, you did something wrong. It's not a uh, you know you know what I mean, right? It, but the memory metal, you can say, okay, here's a piece of memory metal. Watch what I do to it. And you hold it up, and it, it just unfurls itself, and it just floats there. You say, oh, my goodness, we don't have, we still don't have anything like that. that so that's why it's the Holy Grail, because you, you can tell in an instant that we don't have anything like that. Where the other stuff, you got to send it out. And it's months and months and months, and everybody's forgotten about it. And you say, oh, whatever happened to that uh, piece of uh, metal that uh, so-and-so sent out? And So that's why we're looking for the memory metal, not that other stuff. We'll, right. we'll take anything. You know, <laughs> we'll take anything, but the, the memory metal is the most – it was the most uh, numerous uh, pieces of wreckage. It was the memory metal. And it's also the easiest to uh, tell that it's really something that we don't have yet. Uh, at, at, at what point and in what capacity did Yuri Geller get involved? Oh, my goodness. Yuri Geller, uh, the, the mentalist, uh, they conducted uh, 
this was in the uh, uh, Dr. Wang, I believe, was in charge of this. Uh, he was trying to. I, it had to do with the, the the memory metal and whether they could activate uh, mentally this uh, this memory metal in some way, either make it bend or something like that. It was and. Uh, uh, Dr. Wang actually admitted that uh, he had uh, Yuri, Ge- uh, Yuri Geller uh, in for this uh, project, but he, he absolutely didn't want to talk about it. But the, the idea was that the ship maybe was was piloted or driven by some sort of mental activity uh, rather than a, a shifter, you know, and a steering wheel, that it was all mental. And... Uh, that that wasn't the chapter I wrote, but that, that's 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 uh, pretty much uh, uh, Yuri Geller was involved in that uh, from the with the with the Dr. Wang project, and uh, I don't know what became of it, uh, but it, the idea of uh, you know maybe the ship was maybe it was all mental is something that people consider. Right. You mentioned the Nitinol, which, you know, was a reverse engineering as best we could, as you put it, of the uh, this memory material. Uh, then we had these rumors that things like, uh, you know, transistors. We had transistor radios. Uh, there, there didn't seem to be any sort of transition between the vacuum tube and these transistor radios. So some people speculated that was a, a gift from the Roswell UFO crash. Things like, uh, well, you, we mentioned fiber optic cable, night vision binoculars. Uh, how likely? Yeah, how like? Yeah. How likely <laughs> is that, given the fact that again? You know, such a conundrum trying to apply 1940s terrestrial science to this advanced technology. Well, here, here's the thing, Richard, is uh, I hate to say uh, that uh, armed conflict, uh, uh, i.e. wars, there's a benefit. So one of the benefits of war, and I hate to use that term, is that there are new developments in all of these areas, uh, not necessarily what we're talking about, but new things are developed. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, I had an operation uh, some years ago uh, called a colostomy, where they take part of your large intestine out. I had a perforated, uh, uh, what do you call them things, uh, diverticulum. I would have died, but uh, it's it came from the battlefield. Wounded soldiers that were 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 uh, shot in the you know they have you punctured their large intestine, so they would cut out the part that was you know damaged and they tap back together again, and uh, that came from war. So there are things that come from uh, developed during uh, wars. Now, 1947, you're two years post-World War II. Uh, things like transistors and all that stuff, it's, in my view anyway, it, it's, uh, I'm not discounting it, but it's speculation. Um, whereas for me, the nitinol, again, there was no history whatsoever of any studies of self-healing metal, shape-shifting metal, prior to after the Roswell crash. 
with this memory metal. But things like uh, Kevlar, even Velcro. They say, oh, Velcro came from the Roswell crash. Um, uh, night night vision goggles. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't – there's just not enough uh, for me – uh, substantiation for those things uh, it, you know you can speculate uh, but there, there has to be more 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 substantive uh, evidence of that at least for me that concludes part one of my two-part conversation with Thomas Carey now before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs I'll be back in a moment with a few thoughts on an upcoming episode my strange planet shop is filled to the rafters and bursting with great gear check out the toxic mail and the protect our power grid t-shirts my personal favorite right now though is my line of t-shirts celebrating carbon dioxide the miracle molecule that makes life possible on our planet but there's more than just t-shirts there's mugs phone cases great hoodies and sweatshirts tote bags stickers and more the proceeds from the strange planet shop goes to support the work i do here They help make this podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, all possible. So, get on up to my Strange Planet shop today. Just go to strangeplanet.ca. Remember, Christmas is coming. It's a strange planet. Get the gear. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, part two of my two-part conversation with Thomas Carey on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the real Area 51. We know there were at least four subterranean levels. They had vaults back there, and uh, someone even said they saw an aircraft down there. But in recent years, I find this interesting, all of that has been cemented over, so you can't get down to any of those uh, lower levels where all the action was. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.